I lived in Madison for 23 years, but I grew up in Southern California. Uh, so even though I spent almost half my life here in the Midwest, there are some things that go on in the Midwest that I simply do not understand. And one of those things is walking on the frozen lake. <laughs> I don't get it. I think it's crazy. I don't know why people do it. Where I come from, nobody walks on lake, frozen or otherwise. Some people tell me it's perfectly safe. I don't believe them. <laughs> so I've actually never walked on like all the way onto a frozen lake before until this past week. Roll clip. So I'm on top of frozen Lake Mendota. I don't know why. It's kind of crazy. But I feel okay because I have my life vest and I have a rope. If I fall through, our production director will pull me out, and that'll be good. Uh, you know, I, I did that because, well, frankly, um, for me, walking on the frozen lake is, it puts me smack dab in the middle of the tension between faith and doubt, faith and questions, faith and unbelief. It, it's, a, it's a step of faith for me. I need to trust the people who are telling me it's perfectly safe, but all the while, there are voices in the back of my head saying, this is crazy, this is, don't trust them. It's, 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 it's voices of fear and anxiety. And all the time I was walking on the lake, I was anxious, I was uncertain, I was fearful. Because faith is always mixed with unbelief. And that's what we're talking about today. Um, but before we get there, let me introduce myself. My name is Charles. I'm one of the pastors on the teaching team. I want to greet everybody who's here. And those of you joining us by video in Traditions Gallery, Upper House, Fitchburg, those of you watching online, and those of you look, listening to our podcast, and to the Chinese speakers in our congregation, to everyone, welcome to Blackhawk Church. We're very glad you're here. Now today, we're actually starting a new sermon series. Actually, that's not right. We're actually not starting a new sermon series. Uh, today, we're, we're, we're doing season two of the series on the Gospel of Mark. And this series, this season is called The Unexpected King. Uh, last fall, we did a series, uh, 15 weeks. It's called The Unexpected Kingdom. And we read chapters one through eight of the Gospel of Mark. And, and so today, starting today, we're, we're doing nine weeks and we're finishing the second half of the Gospel of Mark. So we need a little recap, you know, like last season on the unexpected kingdom. <laughs> so, um, first thing that we learned from last season is that the Gospel of Mark is actually not a standalone story. It's a continuation of the story of the Old Testament. So here is the Old Testament story in brief. Number one, God creates a good world and creates humans to rule over it. He wants to be with the humans and create a community of love on earth. However, the humans rebel against God's rule. And... Uh, and this rebellion destroys our relationship with God and with each other. We become broken people living in a broken world. Now, what does God do? Well, here's his plan. He establishes the ancient kingdom of Israel as his tool to woo the rebellious world back to him. That's the plan. However, that plan goes haywire because Israel rebels against God's rule. So in response, God, number five, destroys Israel and sends his people into exile. And then finally, number six, God's people under the oppression and, and domination of foreign people, they wait for God to restore his kingdom. There it is, Old Testament story in six sentences. 
Okay. Now, <clears throat> the Gospel of Mark is a continuation of that story. The, the, the story tells us that God sends his son Jesus to restore the kingdom of God. However, this kingdom that Jesus proclaims is radically different from what first century Jewish people expect. Now, here are the ways in which it was unexpected. First, the enemy of the kingdom of God. What was expected by the first century Jews is, well, we're under foreign domination. We need to get rid of them. The enemy must be the Roman Empire. And Jesus says, actually, no. The enemy is actually the spirits who rebel against God it, that dominates our world. So enemy is not other people. Second, well, if the enemy is the Roman Empire, what is the power of the kingdom? Well, it must be military power. It must be weapons, soldiers, troops. We must be able to defeat them in, in battle. And Jesus says, no, if the, if the enemy are the spirits who rebel against God, who dominate our world, then power comes from faith in the Messiah, in Jesus. How do we live in this kingdom, the ethics of the kingdom? Well, the Jewish people would say, well, we follow the Torah that was given to us by Moses. We follow the food laws. We follow the Sabbath laws. We do the sacrifices. And Jesus says, no, ethics of the kingdom is really about transformation of the heart, inside-out transformation. And then finally, who are to be the people in the kingdom of God. The Jewish people says, well, of course, it's got to be us, right? We're the descendants of the ancient Israelites. And Jesus says, actually, no, it's everybody who believes in me. And that could be anybody. And that opens the door wide open to Gentiles, to non-Jews. The whole world is now invited to come into the kingdom of God. And then last December, we had the season finale, in which Jesus reveals two more shocking ways in which the kingdom he proclaims is different from what is expected. First, Jesus says, the king of this kingdom will die. Verse 31, Jesus then began to teach the disciples that the Son of Man, referring to himself, that Jesus must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. And after three days, rise again. Not only must the king die, his followers will die too. Whoever wants to be my disciple, Jesus says, must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. So here are two more ways in which the kingdom Jesus proclaims is different from what's expected. Number one, the king. What's expected is a king who's a victorious military leader who defeats the Romans, and what they get instead is a suffering servant who dies for his people. What about the followers? Now, this is really important for the disciples now, right? What they expected was to be powerful leaders in the kingdom of God. They go to Jerusalem, they take over. You're secretary of state, you're secretary of commerce, you're secretary of defense. We get to rule things and run things. And Jesus says, actually, no, following, means me, following me means following me to my death and to your deaths. Hmm. Now, just think about this for a little bit. I mean, from the perspective of the disciples, right? I mean, you know, we're following a guy who's we think is the Messiah. He is the king. And he's in the countryside, and he's gathering bands of people, so which means we are revolutionaries by definition. Now, now, we think he has great potential. He has power. He has charisma. He has great teaching. Okay, some of his teaching is a little hard to understand, so it sounds a little crazy. But there's no doubt that God is with this guy. So we're marching on Jerusalem, and we're taking over. And then Jesus says, yeah, about that. The king's going to die, and his followers will too. Now, at this point, you have got to be asking questions. Like some kind of question, like, what kind of a kingdom is this? This is not a kingdom. This is a suicide pact. 
What kind of king is he? He's not a king. He's not a leader. He's leading us all down this dead-end trail. It's just going nowhere. I don't care how much faith you have. There's got to be all kinds of questions, all kinds of doubts. Do I really want to follow this guy? Doubts, questions, fears, unbelief. And this is where we left things last December at the end of last season. So today we begin season two. We are in the immediate aftermath of these explosive revelations. And today we're looking at Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 29. Uh, go to your Bible if you have paper or on your smartphones. Or if you brought your Mark journal, extra credit. <laughs> For those of you uh, who didn't pick one up last fall, uh, you can get one at your info center in your at your location. Mark 1 through 29 contains two stories. They're connected. Uh, one happens on the mountain. One happens below it. Uh, give you a bit of heads up. These stories are kind of unusual. They describe things that we don't usually see in our daily lives, if ever. It's going to be pretty hard to relate to what's going on in these stories. However, they teach critical truths about what it means to have faith in the kingdom of God. So I'm just asking you to stay with me, okay? Stay with me as we follow on this story, and we're going to get to some place that's going to be really helpful for us. So let's look at verse 1. And Jesus said to the disciples, truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Now, chapter 9, verse 1 is part of the conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples in which he tells them he's going to die and they're going to die. And so chapter 9, verse 1 is a way of saying, hey, you know, the kingdom of God is not going to end in failure. Okay? Us dying doesn't mean that this whole thing goes down. In fact, the verse before, he's saying, you know, one day I'm coming back. Right? I, he, when, when, when the Son of Man comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Off in the future, the kingdom is going to succeed. And if that sounds way, so, way far off, he said, well, actually, some of you, a few of you here, before you die, you will get to see the kingdom of God come with power. What does that mean for the kingdom of God to come with power? Now, there's some people who say they're talking about the resurrection of Jesus, and that's certainly possible. But I think most biblical scholars would say, yeah, actually what's really happening is he's pointing to what's coming up next. The next story we're going to read is about the kingdom coming with power. Verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. And so Jesus brings three guys with him up the mountain. When he gets there, he transfigures. The Greek word there is metamorpho, from which we get the English word metamorphosis. It means to change shape, to change appearance. Jesus looks different. He starts to glow white. He starts to reveal something about himself. You see, Jesus is both human and God. Now, the disciples sees him most of the time as human, but here he gives them a glimpse of his divine nature. And then we get Moses and Elijah. They show up. And that's a quick reminder that the Gospel of Mark is a continuation of the Old Testament story. Moses and Elijah are key figures in the story of the Old Testament. Moses was the founding father of Israel. He's the one who rescues God's people out of Egypt and establishes the covenant that God has with his people. Elijah was the first major prophet, a powerful prophet, who challenges the kings of Israel who were leading the country astray. And interestingly, both Moses and Elijah, they go up the mountain to meet God. 
in their own lifetimes. So, oh, by the way, uh, at the end of the story, Jesus gets into a conversation with the disciples about Elijah. And uh, we're, we're just not going to have time to talk about that. So, sorry. So, here's, here's, the, here's, here's what's going on, okay? Um, remember, the disciples are like, this going to Jerusalem to die thing is crazy. This can't be part of the plan. So, what does Jesus do? He brings three of them up to the mountain, shows them a bit of his divine nature, and then shows them Moses and Elijah. The message? The plan is a direct trajectory from Moses and Elijah. You can draw a straight line from Moses to Elijah to me. This plan to go to Jerusalem and die is not a deviation. It is a continuation. It's what God wants. It's what God's been working toward all this time. And that gets confirmed in verse 7 when God's voice shows up in the story. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love, listen to him. What's the point? Listen to him. Listen to him. I know his plan sounds crazy. I know it sounds insane. Listen to him. It is my plan. So how did the disciples respond to this? Well, verse 5. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. So verse 6 tells us that the disciples were frightened out of their minds because what we learn is Jesus is scary. Not something we want to push in children's ministry, (laughs) but Jesus is scary. Not because he wants to scare us, not because he wants to intimidate us, but Jesus, by the virtue of being who he is, by being God, even just a glimpse of his nature. It is fearsome. It is awe-inspiring. And Peter is left blabbering. And we know he's blabbering because Mark tells us he's blabbering. And remember, Mark was Peter's translator. So this is likely Peter's own assessment of his words. He's like, I had no idea what I was saying. That was just dumb. Now, it may have seemed dumb to Peter in retrospect. But Peter's words are not nonsense. He's getting at something. Let's make a tent. Let's make a shelter. Let's make a booth. Why? Because we like it here. It's good here. Let's stay for a while. Now, many of us have been to conference, Christian conferences, Christian retreats, The Passion Conference, once a year, 60,000 college students gather together to worship God in one place. The the, the Urbana Missions Conference, every three years. And these are what we call mountaintop experiences. We actually use the phrase mountaintop experience. And almost always, there's a desire to stay, to stay there, to get away from the, the noise, the hubbub, the muck of the broken world right here. We like mountaintops but we can't stay there. Because the mountaintop experience is founded on the story that runs from Moses to Elijah to Jesus. All three of them went up the mountain. All three came down because the mountaintop was never meant to be an end in itself. It's designed to bolster us from mission on level ground. And this is a real temptation for us. Here at Blackhawk Church, Our our mission is building a community to reach a community. And for some of us, we really like the first part, building a community. Look, 
when it is done well, when we have a healthy Christian community, it's an awesome place. We worship together. We learn about Jesus together. We love each other. We pray for each other. We're surrounded by people who share kingdom values, who all want to grow in our walk with Jesus. It's a great place. There's nothing wrong with that. But we can't stay on the mountain. Building a community to reach a community. Last week, we celebrated REACH, our strategic initiative to reach Dane County. Today, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen next during the, during the spring semester. After the Mark series, immediately after that, we're going to have a sermon series on how to share our faith. Why? Because that's exactly what Mark would want us to do. Mark would want us to be inviting people to follow this King Jesus, this unexpected King. We cannot stay on the mountaintop. And so Jesus and the disciples, the three of them, they come down the mountain, and by the time we get to the bottom, the peace, the glow of the mountaintop goes poof. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and the teachers of the law are doing what? Arguing. Oh, gosh, arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you guys arguing with him about? He asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit who has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long should I stay with you? How long should I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, he immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. Wow. That was a lot in that story, huh? Um, okay, so first thing, yes, this is a story about demon possession and exorcism. And yes, Jesus is a really good exorcist. Um, we actually talked about this last fall. Uh, there was a sermon called Behind Enemy Lines, and you can find it on our website, in which we kind of tackle the meaning of Jesus doing exorcisms on earth. Okay? And a, a, just kind of a couple of reminder from that, reminders from that sermon. Uh, number one, uh, Jesus cast out demons to, to show us that the enemy of the kingdom of God are not other people. It's, 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 it's Satan and the evil spirits who rebel against God. And second, Jesus casts out spirits to show them that he is challenging them. He's challenging the demonic realm for the possession of the human world. Now, we've seen this many, many times in the Gospel of Mark already, okay? So this story is, is going far beyond just simply telling us that Jesus has power over the demonic world. 
what's going on is Mark is using the story to delve into the intersection between power, faith, and unbelief. And he's doing that through two different sets of interactions. There's the interaction between Jesus and his disciples, and there's the interaction between Jesus and the Father. Let's begin with Jesus and the disciples. Jesus comes down the mountain. A man starts talking and telling him about how he brought his demon-possessed son to the disciples, and they couldn't do anything. Now, this is kind of weird, because the disciples, they... They've been trained on this. They know how to do this. They did this back in Mark chapter 6. Jesus sent them out two by two, and they went around healing people and casting out demons. So how does Jesus respond? You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long should I stay with you? How long should I put up with you? I don't know if you noticed, but these kind of outbursts from Jesus are getting more frequent. Jesus is a man who is tired. He is exasperated. And it's a weariness that's close to heartbreak. He is so frustrated because his disciples can't keep it together. Right? I mean, he leaves nine disciples down here to hold a fort while he takes off. But he's like a parent with young children. The moment he leaves the house, the whole house falls apart. They've been trained on this. They know how to do this. And he leaves, they lose it. And Jesus is tired. And in the back of his head, there's that clock ticking. You know, how long will I stay with you? How long should I put up with you? Because they're on their final journey to Jerusalem. And he knows when he gets there, he is going to be gone. And this entire kingdom of God project is going to be left in the hands of these guys. And they're not ready. He's running out of time. And so he just, he just, he just lumps his disciples together and says, you, you unbelieving generation. He's saying they, the disciples of Jesus, have unbelief. Now, what is the nature of this unbelief? Well, we find out at the end of the story. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. Now, one way to read the story is to say that Jesus is telling us that not only are there demons, but there are actually different types of demons, kind of like different difficulty levels for gamers. You know, you have level one demons where you can cast them out without prayer. And then there's a level five demon in which you need a level five spell and be at full mana. (laughs) Confession, play a lot of video games growing up. Uh, But some people do read it this way. They read the stories about some kind of technique, right? That the disciples didn't do something right. They didn't pray right. They didn't fast right. Something was off with their technique. And they, they just have to go learn that. Now, I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm not saying they're wrong. But I don't go that way. Uh, because Jesus identifies their problem right at the beginning of the story. And it wasn't, oh, you didn't do this technique right. You didn't pray right. You didn't fast. No, that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says their problem is unbelief. So what is unbelief in this situation? Well, think about it. They've been trained on how to do exorcisms. They've done it before. And what's happening here? They're doing it without prayer. Now, prayer is not a technique, okay? Prayer is connecting with God in this relationship of reliance. It's to align our goals and values with God's goals and his values. And so in this situation, what's really happening is is, is the disciples are saying, yeah, I got this. Disciples somehow end up thinking that they have the power. It's under their control 
They can do it and exercise the power whenever they want to. They have traded a relationship of reliance on God into magical powers that they control. They want kingdom power without reliance on the king. And Jesus says, this is unbelief. Now, I guess most of us are not going to be doing exorcisms anytime soon. But we see God in similar ways. We have a tendency to see him as a source of power to draw from rather than as a person that we rely on and trust in. We, we, we want kingdom power without reliance on the king. And so we develop magical thinking, you know, like maybe gestures or objects or phrases that we can use to control and get God's power. I met Christ followers who, th- who say that if you pray and if you don't end it in, in Jesus' name, the prayer doesn't work. Now, this kind of unbelief shows up in other ways, too. For many of us who are involved in, you know, heavily involved in, in, in Christian ministries, in church or elsewhere, or, or, or we're, you know, we're volunteers here, we can get very focused on techniques, on methods. Do, we must do church this way. We must do ministry this way. And when we start thinking like that, we start to think about methods that get at God's power rather than God as a person. Because here's the thing, God is the one changing people's lives. God is the one doing all the work. We, he invites us to partner with him, but he is one working in the hearts of people. So the disciples of Jesus have their faith mixed up with unbelief. And as we look at the other inter- interaction in the story, the one between Jesus and the Father, we find that, hey, this is also a story about faith mixed with unbelief. Jesus comes down, the father starts talking, and very soon we're realizing this is a father who is desperate. He, he has a son who is controlled by a power that he, he does not comprehend and cannot overcome. There is a desperation for parents, you know, with children. You know, when our children get sick or there's something going on in their lives that we can't do anything about, we feel helpless. And so this father comes to Jesus, he asks for help. Verse 22, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Wow, Jesus is in a bad mood. (laughs) He takes what what the father says and throws it back in his face. If you can, who do you think you're talking to? What is that about? Now, now Jesus is not being mean. He's being direct. You see, what the father really is saying is this. He's, he's saying, okay, Jesus, I have no idea whether you can do this or not. But I am desperate, so we're going to throw something against the wall and see if it works. So let's give it a shot. And Jesus is like, no. This kingdom of God is powered by faith, and what you got going on is not faith. And then verse 24. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And there it is. This is the center of this story. Here Mark is teaching us critical truths about what it means to have faith in the kingdom of God. Faith is not absolute certainty. Faith is not living without doubts. Faith is saying to God, I believe, but I got all kinds of questions. I got all kinds of doubts. Help me overcome them. It's a decision to say to God, you have the power, you have the willingness to help me build faith in you. So I'm going to trust that. That's faith. Now I want to close our time by 
just want to clarify what faith is in the kingdom of God. Okay, number one, faith is not blind. Faith is not a leap into the unknown. Before I walked on Lake Mendota, I looked up ice thickness report <laughs> on the internet. I looked up the physics about how is the four inches of ice is supposed to be able to carry a human weight. And then I talked to people who were on the ice and survived last week. <laughs> faith is not a leap into the unknown. Some of us here, you're not Christ followers. You're asking questions. You're th checking things out. You're looking at things, okay? This is exactly what you should be doing. Figure out what Jesus is teaching. Talk to people who have followed Jesus. Ask them for their experience because faith is not blind. But number two, while faith is not blind, faith at some point requires a decision. At some point, I need to get in that car and drive to the edge of the lake and then walk onto the lake, there will always be questions. There will always be doubts. There will always be uncertainties. But at some point, I need to take that step of faith. Similarly, if those of you who have questions and you've been checking Jesus out for a while now, at some point, you need to say, yeah, Jesus, I believe. Now help me with my unbelief. Number three. Faith, life of faith is always mixed with unbelief. You know, we might think, oh, believing Jesus, that's take one step, once and for all. I believe in Jesus. I place my faith in Jesus. It's all good now. We're all good. No, that first, that's just the first step. That step gets you invited into the kingdom. You're part of the kingdom now. And now that you're part of the kingdom, what happens? Doubts, questions, unbelief continues on. Look at the disciples. They live lives of faith mixed with unbelief. Peter on the mountaintop. He wants to stick around because he wants the peace and harmony of the kingdom's community without the difficulties and challenges of the kingdom's mission. Down below, you have the disciples who are like, we want the power of the king, of the kingdom, without reliance on the king. They live lives of faith mixed with unbelief. So do we all. So do we all. Right? And, and, and we do it in different ways. Some of us, we rely on our, our money or our skills our talents. Okay, some of us were like, we have this consumeristic attitude to what Jesus is teaching, like I'll buy what I want. Some of us, our lives are so busy, there's no way for us to prioritize the kingdom of God. Faith mixed with unbelief. I think if we just take some time and reflect, we can actually identify what is our unbelief. And that, for many of us, would be a really good next step. Finally, Sometimes it's not about what's going on in here. Sometimes it's about what happens to us. When things in our lives suddenly just take a spin to a direction that we never expected. Sometimes when things go wrong and we just have questions like, God, what is happening here? What are you doing? I don't get it. I don't get it. We have, we're struggling to hang on to our faith in the midst of doubts and questions. And we're trying to turn toward God. And this is Stephen Miller's story. Psalm 37.4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. I've been thinking about that verse a lot over the past year or so, um, and it makes me reflect on kind of how my walk of faith has gone. It's more than that. It's more him changing your heart to be more like him, um, to reflect um, his son Jesus. I saw that a lot through... 
A uh, couple things. So soccer to me has been just like a, a major part of my life. Like my whole youth revolved around soccer. So I think I, I kept playing into into college. My junior year was having having a good year and then just got injured playing. Yeah, I was mad. I was mad that uh, God took took that away from me. And kind of similarly, my mom was struggling with cancer and like just eventually passed away and I, I was numb for a while and then just like kind of angry at God, like why would you take her now? Like, it's too soon, like she's too young. And as much as I know God has things in his hands and I, I trust him, I still question like, yeah, why is it, why is it better that my mom's not here? He said he's faithful, that his word is true, and I get to get to have faith in that. Praise God that I get to have an opportunity to have faith in something way bigger than me. Because we, yeah, we go through hard times in this life, and it's hard to see that in so many ways, because we can only see what's right in front of us. He is faithful. He will show up seems a lot longer than I would hope, but I know he's faithful. Faith is not blind, but it is not certainty. Faith is mixed with doubts. Faith is mixed with questions. Faith is every day making that decision to say to Jesus, I believe. Now, it's you now. Help me overcome my unbelief. Let me pray for us. Father, we believe. Help us overcome our unbelief. We believe. Help us overcome our unbelief. For those of us here who are questioning and, 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 and not sure about you yet, Father, we pray that prayer. Help, help us overcome our unbelief. For those of us who, who, are, who, are, who have various ways in which we are doubting you, we are struggling with you, we put those before you and say, you, you're God. You're the one who can help us in this. So we're going to trust you some way, somehow, even though we're not sure how it's going to work out. We believe. Help us overcome our unbelief. In Jesus' name we pray.